So some time ago, we decided to title this retreat um, a secular Buddhist retreat. And this evening, I would like to try and answer the question, what is secular Buddhism? This is a word, um, a phrase that um, seems to be gaining some circulation to the point where sometimes I'm asked, what does a secular Buddhist think about human rights? Or something like that. As though um, this phenomenon, secular Buddhism, somehow not only exists in some form, but has actually worked out some uh, detailed uh, theology uh, which has answers to those kinds of questions. That is certainly not the case. Um, at the most, I think we can say that the notion of secular Buddhism is an idea that's beginning to germinate beginning to be used, is coming to mean something, and in some respects it um, is sufficiently open and fluid for um, all of us to have some say in it. And I'd like to think that that would be part of its, of its nature, that it's not some orthodox dogma imposed by some body of experts, but rather a movement that's uh, allowing a greater plurality of voices to inform what they mean by and what they aspire to uh, in their practice of the Dharma. So what I'm going to be offering is really a rather personal reflection on how I've come to understand this term and how through dialogues with a number of uh, friends and colleagues um, this idea is beginning to achieve some kind of, uh, of form. But perhaps it might be helpful to, um, to say what it's not. See, one thing I think secular Buddhism is not is um, a modification or some kind of synthesis of pre-existent forms of Buddhism which have been perhaps adapted to modernity in some way, have shed some of their cultural features, but are still recognizably part of a particular Buddhist lineage or tradition. And I think we can see uh, these kinds of um, developments throughout the Buddhist world as it comes into contact with uh, modernity and the various discourses of modernity like democracy, for example, uh, psychology, uh, science, uh, modern philosophy, modern theology. And I think most of the forms that have um, become prominent so far are really adaptations or modifications. In some cases, a bit of a hybrid between, say, Theravada Buddhism and Zen, or something like that. And let's illustrate this by, by taking an example that perhaps many of us will be familiar with, and that is the, um, the movement or the, or the school now that calls itself Vipassana, um, distinguished from Vipassana as a name for a certain kind of meditation, small v Vipassana, we now also come across large V Vipassana, which seems to be designating a certain school. And um, I guess the most well-known schools are those of uh, Mr. Goenka, 
on the one hand, which comes from the lineage of uh, Ubar Kin, who was a Burmese politician and, uh, and, 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 and Buddhist practitioner, a layman. And on the other side, we have the tradition that comes through Mahasi Sayadaw, who was a, a very senior monk um, who died about 20 years or so ago. And pretty much all of the Vipassana, uh, all the self-declared Vipassana movements or schools in, in the West will be one of those two uh, types. Now, how did this come about? Vipassana strikes us as being somehow very accessible and very modern in a way. It dispenses for the most part with the religious rituals of Theravada Buddhism and focuses very much on the practice of the sort of meditation we've been doing here. And if you go on a Vipassana retreat, this is the sort of practice of mindfulness, of awareness of the breath and the body and the sensations. And perhaps we think that, well, this is, it's always been like this. This is um, Vipassana, this particular form of Buddhism, uh, possibly goes back to the Buddha, and yet it is strangely modern. Well, the reason for that is because it emerged um, out of the, the, the social and the political context of um, the a colonial struggle, or the post-colonial struggle, in Burma and Sri Lanka primarily. In other words, it was part of a revival of Buddhism, particularly in Burma, which was part of the Burmese movement towards recovering a national identity rooted in their own religious traditions, but able to speak with a voice that was able to stand up to the uh, threat of um, modern Anglicanism, Anglic Anglicanism, in other words, the Church of England and the kind of religion that had been brought by the British Raj and had been promoted by the missionaries uh, and so forth of the Angl Anglican Church. When the Burmese began to um, rebel and resist the colonial oppression, they needed um, a, a discourse that would somehow define them as having every much uh, claim to, to worth in their history, in their religious life, um, in, their, um, in their broad sense of Burmese culture, that would be able to marshal the Burmese people uh, in such a way that they would have the, uh, the dignity and the strength of that identity to be able to resist and stand up to, and in the end they did, overthrow. Uh, the, well, they were part of the movement that overthrew the British Raj. And in fact, Ubar Kim, the teacher of Goenka, became the first finance minister in the first independent government of Burma in 1948 and actually had his civil servants practicing Vipassana every day in their, in their um, ministries. So it's not surprising, therefore, that when students of Mahasi Sayadaw and Uba Kin um, uh, uh, having trained under these te teachers in Burma, uh, then brought Vipassana into the West, it looked already somehow modern. Well, that's the reason. The reason for that is because of the transformation it underwent uh, as part of the uh, colonial struggle. But if one scratches the surface, and goes back into what most Vipassana teachers will hold as their religious outlook or religious beliefs, you'll come back to something fairly traditional. You'll find that many, not all, but many 
uh, of those who work in this field still would explain their practices and their teachings in terms of traditional Buddhist orthodoxy uh, with notions such as, as rebirth and karma and the accumulation of merit and the attainment of nibbana. Um, all of that remains pretty much unchanged. So in other words, what we have in the Vipassana movement is a modification rather than a transformation of Theravada Buddhism. It's also, in terms of its authority, much more in the hands of lay people than monks. That's also a change. But at the end of the day, uh, the monastic uh, traditions, um, which, as it were, uphold the religious orthodoxy, uh, are still very much the ones in charge. And I think you can see the same in other similar movements. Take, for example, the Shambhala a school in Tibetan Buddhism founded by Chugyam Trungpa Rinpoche back in the 70s and 80s, which again is, presents itself very much as a, uh, as a kind of secular, reformed kind of Buddhism. But once you progress in the Shambhala training, you'll find yourself coming more and more back to a rather more traditional kind of Tibetan Buddhism. And again, I don't want to give more examples, but you'll find many instances of this kind of what is called, in fact, Buddhist modernism. Now, in the case of the Vipassana movement, we find that in the last 10 or 20 years, there has been a move which is unabashedly uh, secular, namely the adoption of mindfulness practices in totally non-Buddhist contexts. I think this is actually one of the most significant um, um, moments in the acculturation and the integration of Buddhist practices in uh, modernity. And I'm sure many of you are aware of this. You have mindfulness-based stress reduction, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, which have been incorporated into healthcare. You can now get these treatments uh, in many health services around the Western world. But they're not in any way um, presented as Buddhist practices. The Buddhism with its, its ethical uh, vision, its underlying philosophy, its spiritual aspirations, all of that has been somehow left behind and we just have the nuts and bolts practice of mindfulness. Now I'd like to tell you a story. Um, I was teaching uh, last year on a Buddhist study course in England and um, there were about 30 people and to attend this course you had to have done uh, I think four or five retreats. Um, you had to have some sort of you know grounding in Buddhist practice. And this is a two-year program uh, which runs through a series of modules to provide a much fuller overview and understanding of Buddhist philosophy and Buddhist thought. And at the beginning of the course, we went round the room and asked each person to just give a brief summary of you know, what had brought them to this uh, particular program. And one young lady, who I'll call Jane, uh, said that um, she went to her GP, her, her general practitioner, doctor, uh, in Britain, um, looking for treatment that would help her um, deal with the, some very severe physical pain that had resulted from uh, uh, some burns she had received to her neck and her face. And the GP said, Okay, I can give you a series of steroid injections or I can give you a four-week course in mindfulness. And Jane said, I'll take the mindfulness. <laughs> so she did her four-week course in mindfulness and she found that it worked. This is not to say that her pains completely vanished, but she found a way to 
to deal with them, to work with them, to relate to them, where the 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 suffering and the all of those negative, painful associations that come with such uh, d- uh, f- physical trauma significantly decreased without having to take any medication. Now Jane, like many people who undergo these kinds of experiences, um, is a perfectly bright person and she'd probably picked up somewhere that this had to do with Buddhism or something. So she looked into where mindfulness came from and she discovered, as one can, with a quick Google search, that it's a Buddhist form of meditation and you can go on retreats and there's a whole community and culture around the teaching and the practice of mindfulness. So she started going on retreats. Then she started getting interested in Buddhism. And so we find uh, someone, and I, I know from experience that she's certainly not alone. I think there's a significant number of people coming on any of our retreats now who've actually been introduced to these practices through the health service. They haven't been presented as Buddhist, but what these people find is that by making that very simple, though not necessarily easy, change in their attitude, in other words, instead of uh, a sort of self-identifying with the pain of the burns and wanting to get rid of it, they recognize that this is just a mental experience of pain. They recognize that their reactivity against it is as much to do with the suffering as the actual physical pain itself. They become mindful of the pain. They learn to be with it in a more calm way, more attentive way. They become mindful of their reactions and how that feeds into the pain. They become aware of by being mindful, this reactivity begins to dissolve a bit. And they also realize that this is not something that's just useful for dealing with the, the pain of the burns, in Jane's case. It actually opens up a whole new perspective on life itself. On many, many areas of my inner life, my relationship to my body, then perhaps also my relationship to other people. This then opens up the door to looking for the philosophy or the, uh, a, a deeper kind of practice, a more sustained kind of practice, in order to cultivate this, this um, perspective on life that has suddenly opened up thanks to the National Health Service. Now, what also often happens is that uh, such people then go along to a Buddhist center, the nearest one in their locality, again, courtesy of Google, and they often hit a brick wall because they're told, maybe not immediately, but somewhere down the line, that if you really want to practice the Dharma, you have to believe in reincarnation, you have to believe in the law of karmic cause and effect over lifetimes, you need to aspire for complete enlightenment or liberation from birth and death through nirvana, Um, You're expected to participate in certain kinds of rituals and pujas and prayers. You're expected to show um, certain kinds of um, uh, uh, reverence towards figures in authority, often in robes. And they think, well, wait a minute, that's not quite what I was looking for. There's a bit of a disconnect between a first hand experience of the effectiveness of a practice with essentially the belief system of an Asian religion. So what uh, Jane and others uh, uh, find is that what they're looking for is um, an engagement with Buddhist ideas and values and ethics that's based primarily on praxis, on doing something that makes a difference, rather than on simply believing something. So, it's it's in, in terms of such people's experiences that I think 
notions of secular Buddhism have began to emerge. In other words, what we're looking for in a secular approach is not just a modification of a traditional Asian Buddhist school, but actually a fundamental rethinking of the core elements of the Dharma itself. In other words, um, going right back as far as we can to the sources of this tradition and trying to identify what are the original and distinctive ideas and values and practices that differentiate what Siddhartha Gautama the Buddha taught from, say, what we find in, in other Indian religions that also believe in rebirth and karma and so on. So to this end, secular Buddhism is a movement that's trying to rethink uh, Buddhism from the ground up. It's in a sense making perhaps the rather ambitious um, uh, uh, task of, of starting all over again. And this takes us back to what is now sometimes called uh, Nikaya Vada, uh, the views of the Dharma that we find in the Nikayas. Nikayas mean the body of discourses or suttas that are attributed to the historical Buddha Siddhartha Gautama. And so these are the Majjhima Nikaya, the Diga Nikaya, the middle-length discourses, the long discourses, the connected discourses, the numerical discourses, and the Kudaka Nikaya, uh, the discourses, the short discourses like the Dhammapada and other such texts. So we're going back to this early body of canonical material. And at the same time, we're going back to a clearer understanding of the conditions under which the Buddha taught in his time and place. In other words, 5th century BC India. That we're not assuming that the Buddha just spoke in a kind of enlightened vacuum, uh, teaching things that would be valid and true for all time, but rather the Buddha was teaching in a very specific economic, social, political, religious environment. And if we look at the Nikayas or the Suttas, we find so much of his teaching is given in response to questions, dialogue. It's not some sort of set of doctrines and dogmas that are just imposed. It's dialogical. It's emerging out of the Buddha's conversation with his own time. So in this sense, I think we touch something very much at the root of the word secular. Uh, the word secular comes from the Latin word seculum, which means uh, this time or this age, uh, this period, this siècle, uh, you say in French, which is from seculum, this century. So we are concerned with two secular, the seculum of the Buddha's time, his world, his time, his place, and what he said in that period that still speaks to our seculum, which is late 20th century, early 21st century modernity, or post-modernity, possibly. So it's in that sense we're using the word secular. The Buddha's seculum and our seculum. This is not, however, to uh, claim that we're discovering what the Buddha really meant. Um, and somehow claiming that authority. That's not the case. Because we find in the Nikayas, in the suttas, the Buddha is speaking to many different audiences, priests or former priests, uh, um, ordinary lay people in India, to whom he teaches very much in the same way as many of his contemporaries would. He talks of karma and rebirth and nibbana and the cycle of birth and death and so on. And I think it would be um, naive and also, I think, uh, presumptuous to say, but what he really meant was, 
I think we have to resist that and just recognize that what we can find are certain elements or fragments through these early discourses um, that speak just as much to our own time as they do to the Buddha's time and to, as it were, tease out those passages, put them together, which is what I'm trying to do um, as one of my long-term projects, to create a, a sort of secular Buddhist canon, um, and to arrive at, as it were, everything the Buddha said that cannot be derived from the beliefs of his time, the, 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 especially the metaphysical and the soterial, soteriological beliefs. Soteriology means the way we think about freedom or salvation. Now what this leads us to is that uh, secular Buddhism is no longer concerned with seeking to overcome suffering of all kinds and achieving some enduring uh, liberation or enlightenment in what is essentially a non-human state. A state that after death, we call it nirvana or moksha, liberation, will somehow free us from uh, the suffering of the world. Because that whole view depends upon um, a worldview, a metaphysics that for many people today simply no longer makes much sense and simply doesn't speak to our condition. So rather than uh, seeking such, trans uh, such transcendent liberation and uh, enlightenment, the emphasis becomes seeking a practice of the Dharma as a means to help us uh, flourish fully as human beings in this world, on this earth, with other humans and other forms of life, and in fact nowadays, of course, with a greater awareness of the fragility of the biosphere itself. Because in terms of our current understanding of the universe, um, this is a very unusual um, phenomenon the emergence of intelligent life on this particular planet. We have no hard evidence at all that other forms of life like this exist anywhere else. The only thing we can be certain of is that sentient creatures have evolved on this planet and they experience dukkha, suffering. And a secular Buddhism is one that takes as its primary concern an understanding of and a response to the suffering of this biosphere, this environment, this world, this planet, um, these forms of life that we know. And so such a, a practice is embedded um, in a way of life that seeks to engage every aspect of our humanity the way we see things and think about them, the way we motivate ourselves to act, the way we speak, the way we uh, express ourselves through our bodies, the way we work, the way we make efforts, the way we focus our energies, the way we pay attention, the way we concentrate. In other words, what's called the Eightfold Path. That becomes the goal. The, 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 the realization of uh, a human life uh, imagined within that framework of values. So in other words, it's a practice that's very much embedded in the world. In contrast to what is the case, I think, with most Buddhist traditions, that the emphasis is primarily about gaining some deep spiritual experience, whether it's called enlightenment or insight um, or freedom, uh, that seems to be what the practice is all about. Um, uh, in other words, privileging certain elements of that path as being what the practice really is, and the rest is sort of just support. A secular approach would recognize that um, all of these elements are interconnected, all of these elements are of equal value. 
There's not a hierarchy of values with concentration and meditation at the top, but rather we're trying to embody a life in which all of our humanity is able to um, achieve a kind of fulfillment. And this, of course, is obviously not just a personal concern. It's one that embraces very explicitly our relationships with others, other forms of life, other people. It is embedded in, in ethics, it's embedded in uh, contemplation, it's embedded in a certain philosophy as well. Now, this um, came, I think, through very... We had a discussion in the dining room this afternoon, and it was interesting to see how that discussion, too, in a way, it started with you know, technical questions about meditation. But the more we looked into that, you know, how do I get concentrated, how do I get rid of negative thoughts, how do I develop positive thoughts, the more you look into that, the more you realize that it's not some sort of a technical, mechanical fix that if you're a good meditator, you know how to do, but rather recognizing that um, this practice we're doing here cannot be separated from how we think about ourselves, how we think about the world, um, how we live our lives as moral agents, how we are embedded in relationships, how, in fact, we live in a society that in many ways is um, opposed to much of what we're doing. The, you know, we value calm, stillness, but the advertising industry doesn't. Uh, consumerism doesn't. So although we can create a supportive environment here to cultivate those qualities, we all probably know how challenging it is to be able to, um, uh, in a sense, sustain the momentum of these values in a world that's kind of pushing in the other way. In some sense, I think this has always been the case. I mean, even at the Buddhist time, you know, he encourages his monks to go off into the forest because it's so noisy and distracting, you know, outside the forest. And this is, he wouldn't have made such an emphasis on, you know, looking for solitude and tranquility, you know, if, you know, that had been readily available. But I think our own modern um, kind of world is one that has ratcheted that up to uh, an incredibly high degree. So we start with the question of how, how do I get calm? We end up with a critical reflection on the kind of society we live in, the kind of economic system that that society is committed to, the kind of political system that keeps the whole thing going. So that would be a secular approach, a one that... Uh, uh, acknowledges uh, the complexity of relationships that give rise to our specific experience in, say, meditation right now. But we also understand that a secular Buddhist approach is not just a feature of um, uh, modern rationalism or the supposed overcoming of religious superstition by scientific uh, understanding. But actually the secular movement goes back very much to uh, the Renaissance, that period in the 15th, 16th century in Europe when um, after centuries of dominance by the Christian church, particularly the Roman Catholic Church, the humanists began to rediscover the classical works of antiquity. And particularly, uh, the Greek uh, philosophy, not only that of Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, but also um, the recovery of traditions such as Stoicism and Epicureanism, and scepticism, which are considered perhaps rather less well-known philosophical movements. But when we 
go into those traditions, we find that some of them have striking parallels with uh, the kind of Buddhism that I think was taught at the earliest period um, in India around the same time. With the current dating of the Buddha, which is now 480 to 400 BC, it's been moved forward about 80 years. Uh, the Buddha, in fact, turns out to be a, an exact contemporary of Socrates. And although we tend to think of these India and Greece as very um, distant, remote places in the world, at the Buddha's time they were actually um, almost unified by the Persian Empire of the Achaemenid uh, rulers, starting with Cyrus and Darius and so on. In fact, at the Battle of Thermopylae, which took place northwest of Athens in 480 BC, the year of the Buddha's birth, there were Indian soldiers fighting in the Persian army. Indian soldiers from what is now Pakistan. There were great trade routes. Um, there was far more of an exchange and commonality of ideas uh, than we would tend to think today. The Persian Empire extended right through into the Indus Valley area and right through into, and into the borders of Greece and the Middle East and Egypt. So the Buddha actually lived at a time when the, the great power of the day uh, was the Persian Empire. And he was in a sense born on, 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 on the border of that great um, imperial uh, realm. Now, I think it's going too far to say that some of these early Greek philosophers were, were directly influenced by Buddhism. We have no evidence for that. The, the closest we can come is through the um, life and teachings of a man called Pyrrho, Pyrrho of Elis, who accompanied Alexander um, on his conquest of the Persian Empire, arriving in the Indus Valley, in other words, in India, uh, in 325 BC, which is 75 years after the death of the Buddha. And we know from early Greek sources that Pyrrho uh, studied with um, gymnosophists, naked sages from India, uh, which could well have been Jain monks, they could have been Buddhist monks. I think naked means not wearing very much compared to most Greeks. And um, when Pyrrho returned to uh, uh, Athens, or Asia Minor, wherever it was, he started to teach, and much of what he taught does have striking affinities with ideas that we find in India. There's still a debate as to whether or not he was actually introducing Indian ideas. It's not something we need to go into. But even someone like Nietzsche he, uh, believed that um, Pyrrho, um, he, in fact, it's in one of his writings, he says, although a Greek, this is Nietzsche speaking, Pyrrho was a Buddhist, even a Buddha. This is said at the end of the 19th century that there is an awareness that Pyrrho may have introduced Buddhist-like ideas. Now, Pyrrho taught, for example, the suspension of judgment. The, to, 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 to practice certain meditations, certain disciplines that bring us into a frame of mind in which we are no longer caught up in judging things as good or bad or neutral, but basically a state of equanimity. And that lack of judgment then uh, gives rise to what Pyrrho and other Greeks called ataraxia. Ataraxia means an undisturbed state of mind. And that was considered the goal of the practice. Now they called this philosophy. But the philosophy that we find even in, in Aristotle, but certainly in Pyrrho, in Epicurus and the Stoics, is not the sort of philosophy we would get a degree in at university today. 
In fact, philosophy was really the love of wisdom, Sophia being wisdom, philos being friendship. And that um, love of wisdom was about healing your own soul. In fact, Epicurus says if, that if your practice of philosophy does not uh, heal your own soul, it is worthless. And I doubt that would be said much by many professors of philosophy today. But what that points to is that philosophy is a practice. And in these different communities, it was of great importance that you put the philosophy into practice in such a way it had a transformative effect on the quality of your experience. And in the different schools we get different emphases, but um, all of them, I think, point to something that's really not that different from what we find in Buddhism, particularly a kind of secular type of Buddhism. This is a passage from Epicurus. He says, let no one be slow to seek wisdom when he is young, sorry, let no one be slow to seek wisdom when he is young, nor weary in the search of it when he has grown old. For no age is too early or too late for the health of the soul. And to say that the season for studying philosophy has not yet come, or that it is past and gone, is like saying that the season for happiness is not yet, or that it is now no more. Happiness, I don't have the Greek text, is presumably eudaimonia. Now this term eudaimonia is sometimes translated as happiness, but the term that's usually used now in modern translations is human flourishing. And this, I feel, again, is very much in line with the idea of a practice that embraces the whole of our humanity, the Eightfold Path, which thereby enables us to flourish. And it's interesting, I think it's rather striking, that such human flourishing is made possible by the experience of ataraxia. In other words, um, a peaceful, literally undisturbed mind. Now this, as we'll see in my next talk, um, is quite close to the idea of nibbana, nirvana, as the absence of greed, the absence of hatred, the absence of stupidity. In other words, a, a mind that is at peace, Nibbana is synonymous to shanti, tranquility, quiescence, peace, and Nibbana is not, in a secular approach, the goal of the practice, but it's actually the beginning of the Eightfold Path, which leads to a human flourishing. So we have actually a similar kind of model. The practice of spiritual exercises to bring us to this state of equanimity and peace and untroubledness that allows us then to live unconditioned by what habitually troubles and disturbs and keeps getting us overwhelmed and, and, uh, and, and frustrated and upset and uh, traumatized and so on. It's also a vision that, um, a, a vision of life uh, that is very close to that experience we find through doing uh, mindfulness and awareness and concentration that brings us into a very um, in more intensified and enhanced experience of what's happening right now. This idea of fully being, being fully present with the world. It's not just about being still and present, but in doing so, the world is somehow enriched and enhanced. 
And to illustrate that, I'm going to read a passage from Lucretius. Lucretius was a Roman um, poet who wrote in about 50 BC. We know nothing about him except that he wrote this poem. Behold, he says, the pure blue of the heavens and all that they possess, the roving stars, the moon, the sun's light, brilliant and sublime. Imagine if these were shown to men now for the very first time, suddenly and with no warning. What could be declared more wondrous than these miracles no one before had dared believe could even exist? Nothing, nothing could be quite as remarkable as this. So wonderful would be the sight now, however, people hardly bother to lift their eyes to the glittering heavens. They are so accustomed to the skies. Now this, I feel, is very, uh, to me, one of the most evocative passages uh, in any literature, Eastern or Western, that somehow captures the sheer astonishment of being here at all of being in this world. And I feel that the sort of practices that Lucretius presumably undertook, and he describes in some detail his Epicurean vision, are probably comparable or similar to the sort of exercises we do here. And likewise, when we come to the Stoics, uh, they're probably the better known of these uh, of these schools of thought. Uh, Stoicism too is very much a practice in this world. And one of the things that um, is very central to Stoic practice is learning to distinguish between what you can change and what you cannot change. And learning to cultivate patience and acceptance for what you can do nothing about and learning to embrace and engage with those elements of your experience that you can do something about. I found this idea very useful actually. It's again perhaps familiar to you because it re-emerges um, I think with St. Francis and is now used as a prayer in AA. You know, God grant me the courage to, 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 to change what I can change the patience to accept what I cannot change, and the wisdom to know the difference. Now that's pure Stoicism, incorporated into Christianity, and now in a secularized garb in Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> so this is the way the wheels turn. Now this is also, of course, I think something very resonant with Buddhist practice. Someone asked me recently, you know, how, how do you know when you should embrace the dukkha of life and work with it and how do you know when you should just recognize this you know this is this is life and there's not much i can do about it and again it's the same wisdom it's the same kind of discernment that's at the center of the practice we're doing here this wisdom to know the difference this wisdom to know what we can transform within ourselves by implication also in the world, and what is perhaps beyond our capacity to do much about. So, again, another example of a commonality. And I feel that in this way, with these examples I've given, uh, a secular Buddhism is one that reconnects with forgotten elements of our own Western traditions. Elements that used to be, for hundreds of years, in the ancient Greek and Roman worlds, you know, practices and philosophies embraced by numerous men and women of all walks of life. But with the decline of the Roman Empire and the resurgence of Christianity and the eventual dominance of the Christian churches at the end of the Roman Empire, these uh, schools of thought uh, were suppressed. They were, uh, they were um, closed 
by an edict of the Emperor Justinian in the 6th century. So Plato's academy was just forcibly shut down. Uh, the Stoics, the Epicureans, the Skeptics, Pyrrho, were no longer allowed to teach. Uh, their um, schools were closed, and the philosophers, many of them, had to seek refuge in Persia. And then for hundreds of years, that whole tradition was lost. And it's only with figures like Montaigne, who is, again, one of my heroes. Montaigne was a French aristocrat who lived just down the road from where we live in France. <laughs> a coincidence, of course. Um, but he was one of, I think, one of, one of the great humanist minds of the Renaissance who um, considered himself a Pyrrhonist, a follower of Pyrrho, and also a follower of um, Epicurus and Lucretius. And he sought to apply these um, classical forms of Greek philosophy as a means of understanding his own experience as a human being. And this he recorded in what are called his essays, which you haven't read, I would really recommend. And I think there's, a, in a sense, a lineage here um, that connects both particularly these early Buddhist ideas and practices that uh, secular Buddhism is drawn to with the Greeks, with Montaigne, with the Renaissance, and many elements of modern philosophy and psychology, all of which have stemmed from the Renaissance period. So in this sense, secular Buddhism is not an Eastern import but it is, I think, also a movement that can help revive and restore um, forgotten elements within our own tradition. And I also feel that it's a mutual uh, process that I think Buddhism too can learn from the Greeks um, and from certain modern philosophers and uh, psychotherapists, psychologists. So I feel that this movement is not existing in some sort of isolation, but rather is concurrent with many elements of modernity and post-modernity and post-metaphysics that seem to be, um, in a way, what's opening up for us uh, now and potentially in the years to come. So um, that's my brief answer to what is secular Buddhism. <laughs> We're going to have to stop. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.